Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Joshua 9, we're going to continue on in Joshua, Joshua chapter 9. And the title of the message is Lack of Wisdom, But No Lack of Grace. Lack of wisdom, but no lack of grace. And beginning in verse 1, Joshua 9, it says, And it came to pass, when all the kings which were on this side, Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys and in all the coast of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and Ai, they did work wilily, like to say that three times fast, and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent, and bound up, and old shoes, and clouded upon their feet, and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua under the camp at Gilgal, and said unto him, and to the men of Israel, We become from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, O peradventure you dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are you? And from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. We've heard of the fame of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, which is at Ashtaroth. Wherefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants, therefore now make you a league with us. This our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now, look, behold, it's dry and moldy, and these bottles of wine which we filled were new, and behold, they be rent. And these are garments, and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. And the men took of their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And it came to pass at the end of three days after they had made a league with them that they heard they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came into their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, and Beeroth, and Kerath-Jerim. And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregations weren't happy with that. They murmured against the princes. But all the princes said unto the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. And this we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear unto them. And the princes said unto them, Let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation, as the princes had promised. And Joshua called for them. He spake unto them, saying, Why have you beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. 
Because of that, therefore, we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now, behold, we are in thine hand. As it seems good and right unto you, do unto us. Do that. And so he did unto them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel that they killed them not. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day in the place which he should choose. So, you know, we've seen and studied in the book of Joshua, you know, on the one level, this war that's going on here between Israel and Canaan, the people of Canaan, is a physical war, isn't it? Because swords are drawn, strategies used, blood is shed, and spoils are taken. But on another level, the primary level, there's the forces at work here are what? They're spiritual. Spiritual forces. It's what's known as a true holy war. They talk about having holy wars now. Islam's having a holy war. But this is a true holy war where it's the powers of darkness versus the sons of light. That's what we have going on here. Because the people of Canaan, they worship Balaam and Ashtaroth, and they prayed to these gods and looked on them for their success and to help them. And they were what? They were sons of darkness. They were spiritually dark people, and they just continued to head into increasing spiritual wickedness over 400 years. Because God said, part of the reason I'm sending you down into Egypt is the people of this land, they have to reach their limit of sin, their full measure, it says. In other words, people in this world, they've got their full measure of sin when judgment will come. It talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 2. But he's saying these people, their sin has got to reach that level, so to speak, where the cup's ready to overflow till it's filled to the brim. And that, he said, is where they have gotten out in 400 years of sin. And you read in Leviticus what these people did, sexual things, that, you know, it's in the Bible. These people were perverted against the Lord, against his law. And all they were worthy of at this point was judgment. And so God brings Israel into the land. He has two purposes here. Number one, he's going to judge these people, isn't he? And he's also, what's the second reason he's bringing them in there? He's going to fulfill the promises that he had made a long time ago to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give you this land. Now, let me ask you, is this some plan? You think this is cruel, what Israel does to these people? Is this some plan they dreamed up one day? Because who is the one who is leading the charge? Who is the one that's the captain of the Lord's army? It's who is it? It's God himself. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the one leading not only the physical Israel, through Joshua he's leading them, but more importantly, he's leading this vast invisible host of angelic warriors, isn't he? Supernatural warriors leading the charge. And so the one in charge of everything that's going on here, if you have a complaint about every man, woman, and child is killed, the one who is in charge of all of this, the one who's commanding and leading it to happen is God himself. And on the other hand, too, we need to remember this for our own lives spiritually. He's the one responsible for the success. If you obey me, you'll have good success, won't you? That's the way it works. Like I said, on the one level it's physical, but is it really because every victory we've seen so far, and that's the way it is through this entire process, is supernatural. How do these victories come? It's through the wisdom and power of the Spirit of God. 
That's how all of their success has been given. And so it's a holy war, but this is God's holy war, isn't it? Victory is guaranteed. Guaranteed to Israel, isn't it? There are just two conditions. And the two conditions were given in chapter 1. He says, if you keep my law in your heart, you keep it before you and meditate on it and follow my law and obey me. And the second condition is what? You just have to submit to the Lord of hosts. Do things his way. Don't do things your way. And if you want to say this chapter here, could have given it another title. It's Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all of thine heart. Lean not to your own understanding. He's not saying we can't have any understanding or think. We have to take our brains out of gear. But he says we're not to lean on that. We're to lean on God's direction. He says in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll be the one to direct your paths. That's the other condition. That's all they have to do. Just seek God, do what he says, follow Joshua and keep the law. So we said a few weeks ago, and most of us think of Joshua when you read that book and you just some unregenerate person reading it and say, well, that's just a historical book. All it's doing is telling you how Israel conquered and divided the land of Canaan. But we said the ancient Jews, they put this in what category? You remember? The category of the prophets. Because these events aren't just described like a historian who's supposedly neutral is describing the life of Winston Churchill. No, we're getting these events. I mean, they are actual factual events that happened, but we're seeing everything from heaven's perspective, aren't we? We're getting a spiritual interpretation of this ancient history. So Joshua is conquering in a real sense. Canaan, he is. But what we're learning here is a lesson in theology. And if you're paying attention, we're going over spiritual principles that should guide and help us in our lives as Christians. So the New Testament, we've heard this many times in Romans 15, it says these stories, these accounts, a book like Joshua, a prophetic book given us principles, spiritual understanding is written why it says for our learning, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, to teach us something, to instruct us. You got to pay attention. A lot of people, they sit in here and they're looking at me and it's going in one ear and out the other. I know it is. And so what are you gaining from that? But you read this book, you read what God's saying, you listen to what the Lord's saying. That's where all the authority's at in his word and what he's saying. And you learn something. You learn these principles and you come to an understanding and it says through that, through what we learn, we gain patience and comfort of the scriptures and have hope. That's what it says in Romans 15. That's what the Old Testament stories do for us. We gain patience. The word is endurance and perseverance because we look at this and we see these Old Testament saints endured for years. You look at Noah, 120 years, Abraham waiting for that son Isaac to be born until he's too old to have a boy. Joseph rotting in that prison cell. David, we see Joshua, we see all these people that they persevered and we see God's faithfulness. And man, we could think if he was faithful to them and they endured, he will be faithful to me too, right? Not only gain patience, but it says we'll gain comfort. The word is encouragement. He did it for them, he'll do it for me too. Why? Because the Bible says, Peter says, God is no respecter of persons. And like we used to hear, no respecter of persons. He's only a respecter of faith. Just trust him. Just give him faith and he'll have respect unto you just like he did all these people in the Bible. 
And when you get that encouragement to endure, that produces, Romans 15 says, hope. And hope is not like, I just hope it happens. No, it's a confident expectation that it's going to happen. I know this is what you should get out of the book of Joshua. You read the whole thing through that I know God will do everything he says. And so I want to quote this. I think I quote this about every week because I like it. Joshua 23, 14. You know, confident expectation in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things. And we talk about good things of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass. We can have a confident expectation, but not one thing has failed thereof. Amen. So we see here in these first 14 verses, we're going to talk about Israel's lack of wisdom. That's what we have here in these first 14 verses. So the Gibeonites, they hear of what Israel did to Jericho and Ai, how they destroyed every man, woman and child. And they are afraid. And it's not because the Gibeonites were a bunch of sissies. Like they haven't been doing their bench presses or whatever. They're a bunch of cowards. Because you go ahead and you read chapter 10, and it says the men of Gibeon were strong warriors, mighty men, heroes of battle. That's who these guys were. But they had the good sense to realize that, hey, it doesn't matter how mighty we are in the flesh, that we all look like Tim Tebow coming to bat. Oh, they're like, hey, that doesn't amount to anything compared to the God that created the universe. They had the good sense to realize that, no match. And so what do we have? What do we do here? They said, "Uh uh-uh, we're going to do something else, another strategy. And look at verse 4. It says they did work wilily. Wilily, what a word. And what does that sound like, wilily? It sounds to me like wily, as in wily coyote. Those of you that remember the, the old Roadrunner cartoons, because old Wiley Coyote always had these tricks to catch the Roadrunner, and every single one of them would backfire. So he's rolling a bomb. He's always got bombs. He's got this bomb that's going to explode and do in the Roadrunner. So, you know, I don't know what he thought he was going to have left to eat, you know. But every time that bomb would come rolling down, and right when it's just getting ready to explode, you know, he looks at you with those wide open eyes, and he's like, Oh, no, not again. And then old Wiley would get exploded, right? They'd all come back on him. These wily schemes. And that's what the Gibeonites have come up with here. A wily coyote scheme. A lot of commentators like to use the word a ruse. A ruse is just a clever strategy or a deceptive trick. And that's what's going on. So they just sent a few men. They didn't bring everybody. They just sent a few men acting like ambassadors. They got worn out old sacks on their donkeys, worn out wineskins that had been ripped and patched. Their sandals are old looking. They got patches in there, probably ripped out sections of the Jerusalem post and patched it in there so they could keep walking. They got old clothes and they're like, they make their bread look old and moldy. They thought of everything, didn't they? To give the proper appearance. You know why? Because their lives depend on Israel believing this story that they're going to tell. And so they come to Joshua. And here they are with that old Middle Eastern way about them, you know, that probably that meek little way. Oh, Saeed, we have come from a far country, a very far country. They're talking to him like that. And please make a covenant with us. And the Jews are suspicious and they're like, wait a minute. You know, maybe you live around these parts. How could we make a covenant with you? And they're like, oh, no, they don't answer their question. They just said, no, no, we are your servants is what they tell them. We are your servants. 
And so then Joshua, he's a little smarter than them, and he asked them directly, who are you and where are you from? And there again, they never say where they're from. They lie to him. They say, oh, we come from a very far country. A very, very, very far country is what they tell him. And then they begin to flatter him. And here's how they gain a foothold. They're going to talk about their God. Oh, yeah. We only came because we've heard of the name of the Lord. Heard of his fame, what he did to Egypt, what he did to those two kings, Sihon and Og. And so our elders sent us to you, and they said, you need to make a treaty with those people. And you don't believe us? Look at our bread, look at our clothes, look at our donkey. Here, take some of this food. And they did. They took all that. They checked it out. But what didn't Israel do? Look over in verse 14. Look what it says. And the men, he's talking about Israel here, took of their victuals. They're examining the bread. But what didn't they do? What does it say at the end? It says they asked not counsel of the mouth of the Lord. Made a big mistake, didn't they? Big mistake. And I like the way Sinclair Ferguson categorized Israel's lack of wisdom. He said there's three things going on here. And number one, they were spiritually gullible. And number two, Israel was spiritually blind. And number three, their third mistake and their lack of wisdom is they didn't inquire of the Lord. Let's look at it that way. So they're spiritually gullible. And they should have realized one thing, shouldn't they? When you're in enemy territory, your enemy is not going to be just straightforward with you and honest about your, his intentions, are they? Because everybody uses tactics and strategies like that in war, don't they? I mean, isn't that what Israel just did at AI? They deceived AI? They acted like they did the first time? Or Joshua was like, go up there and act like you're going to take the city again and flee before him? And they weren't really fleeing, were they? They were trying to draw them out of the city so they could get them wedged in, sandwiched in between the two. It's a tactic. They fooled them, didn't they? That's just part of what's going on. And God warns us, doesn't he? Doesn't he tell us, what can we learn from this? That our enemy is going to use schemes against us? Doesn't he say that? Because he does all the time. And he says, unless we... Put on the armor that he's given us. This is what it says in Ephesians 6. We are not going to be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. And that's what it says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the wily schemes. Like we talked, there's that word again, wiles. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Because he's got a lot of agents out there that are wily, that speak to you, that get you to do things, to believe things that are contrary to God's word. Spirits of doubt, of fear, of unbelief, of anger, of depression, slander, gossip, and suspicion. All kinds of schemes he has, doesn't he? You could, the list could go on. And what's the design behind all of that? To get you to fall and to never rise again. And so that armor, not going through all of it, but if we're not armed with truth, that means we're committed that this Bible is truth. And this is where we're going to search for truth and how to live our lives. Because too many people accept things that are religious talk in Bible terms, but they don't mean what the Bible says. And people get sucked into that because they don't know their Bibles very well. 
but we need to have truth and live a righteous life. That's part of the armor, trusting in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also that breastplate of righteousness is, if you're not living a righteous life, that's 2 Thessalonians. You're going to get sucked into the delusion that is already here. It's not coming if you haven't seen that yet. It is already here and working strongly. God says, you don't love the truth. You don't want to walk in a righteous life. And you love iniquity. You're just getting set up. This deception is not coming right, bold-faced, a frontal assault. It's coming just like the Gibeonites did here. That's the way Satan is moving in right now. Using religious terms. Terms from the Bible. Talking about Jesus. But what Jesus, I would say. Paul warned about that. There can be another Jesus. The Word of God and the sword of the Spirit, those are the armament God has given us. Have to use it. That's the defense He's given us. And it's not His responsibility to wake you up in the morning and tap you on the shoulder and say, get over there and put your armor on. No, the command is, we are to put on. That's our responsibility, isn't it? So, I've talked about this before, in God's animal kingdom, they don't use the defense. That skunk decides he's not going to use his spray God's given him that, he can't complain when he's a dead skunk in the middle of the road. And that's the same with us. We're not going to use the armor God has given us. We can't complain when we're defeated and laying in the gutter. And he'd say, look, I gave you all this. He decided you just didn't really care that much. And you're going to leave it hanging on the rack. And you made yourself a prey. I didn't make you a prey. I gave you everything. What more could I have done? As we said about the vine, giving us everything we need. And Paul warns us, he says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, not to be ignorant of his devices. Because when you're ignorant of your enemy's devices, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians will happen? 2 Corinthians 2, he'll take advantage of you. Isn't that what the Gibeonites have done here? Ignorant of his devices. Well, how do we find out what his devices are? It's called studying the Bible. (laughs) When you know truth, you'll be alert to error. And I'm telling you, that is one of his major schemes in this day. He dresses himself up to appear as a minister of righteousness. It's also in 2 Corinthians. One who is proclaiming the truth. And it's coming through the music. It's coming through preaching. And it says that this person is an angel of light that is appearing as a minister or a singer of righteousness is really a minister of Satan. You've got ministries out here. They only want to sing about the love and the grace of God and preachers that only want to preach on the love and they'll flat out say it. Now, I can say a whole lot more than I'm going to say this morning. I'm telling you, people are treading in dangerous water. Charismatic, dangerous water. I heard this man say, and I'm telling you, this is a major music movement in the charismatic circle. I actually heard him myself in an interview. He said, no, I'm leaving the justice and judgment. That's God's business. All our business is, is to love. Is that Bible? Is that really Bible? Well, I mean, I wonder why, what happened in 1 Corinthians 5. You know, we're a church that we welcome everybody in. Well, I'm not going to say that somebody, meet him at the door, never seen him in here again, well, what'd you do last night? But if they want to be a member of this church, and they're in fornication, they're not a member of this church, because what do we do with 1 Corinthians 5? You have members of your church that are fornicators? I had to read a book 
when I was in school. No perfect people allowed. Worst book I ever read in my life. But that's what's going on in a lot of these churches. No perfect people allowed. He means in the church. We're all sinners. Well, okay, right. But we better not all be fornicators sitting in here or anybody that considers themselves a member of the church. That's trouble. That's sin in the camp. That's what we talked about before. And yet that is going on and that is popular. I want to talk about the justice of God, the wrath of God, the true holiness of God. And God forbid you talk about hell, even though multitudes are headed there. And Jesus talked about it as a warning. That's right. We're not supposed to talk about that. We're going to shut down a minister because he starts talking about hell and the wrath of God. Please. So they dressed themselves up just like the Gibeonites, but their end is to deceive. And if you would turn over to Jude 4. And we talked about this when we talked about false teachers and prophets in 2 Peter, but I want to look at this. Jude chapter 4. And look what it says. It says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. And what do they do? Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, a license to sin, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. People secretly sneak into churches, and their end is whether they know it or not. They may do it unwittingly, I don't know, but they do it nonetheless, is to turn the grace of God that we talked about is meant to do what? What is the grace of God meant to teach us? To deny ungodliness and worldly lust. And they instead say, no, the grace of God is giving you a license to sin. Because God is so filled with love and mercy, he'll cover all you do. No worries. And that's not what the Bible teaches, no matter how you want to package it. Paul warned about this. If you would please turn back to Romans 16. Romans 16. Look what it says in verse 17. Romans 16, 17. Paul wrote, and this is the end of the letter, he says, Now I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, mark them, keep an eye on them, notice them, which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. That means turn away from them. And I'm saying we here, forget about me, forget about me. We have here for 30 plus years, Brother Hamilton stood in this pulpit and faithfully taught us that we are to flee fornication, avoid pornography, gossip. He said he never could get rid of gossip and slander, and I'll believe him. How many times did he use the illustration of, if you get in front of a mirror, don't women own mirrors? Don't they know what modesty is? They stay, you can't stand in front of a mirror and think, is that modest? And he talked about dressing modestly. That seems to be out the door. Worldly music, which is dressed up in Christian. I mean, it's just moved right in. And people just rock and roll just because they're, oh, the words are spiritual. Oh, yeah, really? Well, music is spiritual. It's more than just the words. I've heard Amazing Grace done nicely, like Tanner would do it. And I've heard it turned into a rock song. Now, I'm not going to worship to the rock song Amazing Grace just because the words are good. It's more than that. There's a spiritual influence comes through music. Because in the Old Testament, they were said they could prophesy on their instruments. What does that tell you? It doesn't say anything about the words they use, but he faithfully taught us about those things. Taught us to trust God 
only for our healing, for our finances, and everything else, didn't he? Faithfully taught us that. All of our needs. Taught us what the Bible said about the permanency of marriage. Taught us that in this church, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what? Thank you. Faithfully taught us that. And on and on and on I could go. Soundly taught us from the Word of God. And what does Paul say? What did we just read there? Verse 17. He says, anyone teaching doctrine contrary to what you have learned is to be what? Marked and what? Avoided. Why? Why does he say that? Because of what he has in the next verse. Four. The four is a why. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And look he here. Sounds like the Gibeonites. And by good words and fair speeches, what do they do? They deceive the hearts of whom? The simple. Fair words. Good words, fair speeches. So, you know, the way error works, nobody just smacks you in the face with their error, do they? I've heard a lot of it. I've seen these little four, five minute, ten minute excerpts on these guys that are the big guys in our country. And they don't come across like me. They're nice. <laughs> nice and gentle and everything else. And they'll flatter you right into error. That's what it says right there. And that's what the Gibeonites did. They flattered Joshua and the princes and deceived them. And it says, why did they deceive them? Because it says the same thing here. It says it did to them. Verse 18, they were simple. And that word simple means naive, unsuspecting, gullible. Now, I know Freeman, with a doctor in front of it, is a bad word in these parts anymore. And I'm sorry about that. But I'm going to say this. There's one thing I got out of that ministry and I am eternally grateful for, and that is to be discerning. Amen. Don't accept something just because the teacher or the movement is popular. In fact, something that served me well through the years is if it is popular, that's a good reason to be suspect. Amen. And why is that? Because truth has never been and never will be Popular. Amen. That's right. The way is always, it's not going to change. We're not going to change the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says the way forever will be what? Narrow. And how many people are you going to find on the way? I think it still says a few, doesn't it? <laughs> because the majority, which everybody loves to be in the majority, nobody wants to be the idiot following the few, do they? Nobody does. Everybody likes to be with the crowd. It's happy and having a good time. No one likes to be the ones walking across the current suffering in the few. But where is the majority having a good time, happy? We're all the same. Yeah, it's love and peace and joy. And where are they all headed? What does it say in the Sermon on the Mount? I think it still says destruction. I'm trying to say that nice like those other guys. <laughs> but that's what it is. Amen? So the second thing we see, if you go back to Joshua 9, is this. They were spiritually blind. 
So they only went by what they saw. And so they're content, Israel, Joshua, they got fooled, they're content to take everything they see on a superficial level. They accept these half answers they're given and we just what appears to outwardly be true. Isn't that true? Isn't that what they did? Look at his bread, look at what's got to be true. You wonder where these sayings come from? Where do you think the saying come from? You never judge a book by what? It's cover, because it could fool you. And tell you what's inside necessarily, because what's inside could be good or it could be bad. You never judge a book by its cover. And I like what one man said. If it walks like a duck, it looks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, it's a Gibeonite. <laughs> so here's the fatal mistake they made here. What? They should have pressed the issue, shouldn't they? Joshua and them, I'll let them also. They look beneath that veneer. See what's underneath that veneer. So when Joshua asked them where they were from, he's going to be like, hey, wait a minute, a very far country. That, no, that's not what I asked you. I asked you where you're from. A very far country is not an answer. And he should have realized anyways, hey, I mean, the first thing I'm reading that, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Why would they need a treaty if they're from a very far country? Because Israel's not interested in killing people and taking the land of those that are from a very far country. What do you need a treaty for? All we want's Canaan's land. And why didn't Joshua think about that? Hey, wait a minute, fellas. This, this isn't making sense. And he should have told him, he said, look, I'm not sure about you guys. I'm not sure. Until I am, I'm not doing a thing. So you read it, they just signed that treaty. Okay, here we go. Sign it the same day, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure about you guys. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to wait on God. Instead, they signed that treaty right away. Don't get past the superficiality of things, what it appears to be. They don't get past this superficial religious talk. Oh, we love your God. And how many young men and women, they meet someone, they say they're a Christian. Oh, are you baptized? Yes. Huh, okay. Do you go to church? Yes. Oh, that settles everything. And then they get romantically involved with them. And the person knows all the religious talk to keep them hooked. They give them that. And the person, you just don't have the discernment to ask the penetrating question about their beliefs. What do you really believe? Watch their lives. And you overlook all these things that are throwing up red flags, an occasional cuss word. Some line here and there, the worldliness. You never seen prayer, read their Bible, even really much want to talk about it. You don't gauge how committed they are to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The thing that is really going to matter for the rest of your life that you're going to spend with them and raising a family together. And you tell yourself, well, you know, they're just a little carnal. But look, nobody's perfect. We're all sinners, aren't we? And I am deeply in love. And that's what happens. And you marry a disaster. Happens all the time. And we need to see decisions have consequences, don't they? Aren't we clearly seeing that here? The superficial decision that Israel made, it had potential disaster. Long-term consequences. Now we're going to see at the end here, God in His grace, He made this all work out. But sometimes it doesn't work out. You may make it to heaven, but you got to live in misery for a long time with somebody trying to drag you down the whole time. We know a lot of stories about that, and I'm saying so whether it's potential mates or ministers, 
and ministries, we'd better get beyond the looks, the charisma. I don't see that listed in the qualifications for a pastor. He's charismatic, unless it means speaking in tongues. But I'm talking about charisma. The effervescent smile. Better listen carefully and learn how to ask those penetrating questions. And watch. And the third thing we have here is, verse 14, it says, They didn't inquire of the Lord. And so the greatest mistake they made, we've already said it, we should never make decisions based on appearances alone. Because we've seen here, appearances and circumstances can deceive. So here's the mistake they made. God had given them a great provision that they should have used. The high priest had what was known as the Urim and Thummim. It was kept in what's known as an ephod and the breastplate of judgment. Two sacred objects. Apparently, they were, nobody knows for sure exactly how this worked. The Bible doesn't tell us. But they speculate they were two flat objects. One side was yes, one side was no. And when they cast those lots, that's how they would get their answer. And that would explain how when Saul ends up going to the witch at Endor, but he had consulted the Urim and Thummim, and it said he got no answer. Because it was probably kept coming up, yes, no, one was yes, one was no. Never got an answer, yes or no. So that would probably be the way it is. But we can learn, if you remember, old David taught us something here. He didn't make that same mistake of not inquiring the Lord just because circumstances seemed to be favorable. So when the Philistines in 1 Samuel 23 attacked the Jewish town of Keliah, David inquired of the Lord, should I go down and, sh and smite the Philistines, strike them down, smite them, and deliver that town? And God says, certainly, you go. You will smite and you will win and you'll deliver that town. You'll save them. And that's what David does. He goes there, smites that town, delivers it, and him and his men are inside the town. And so he hears word, old Saul knows you're shut up in that city, and he's coming, and he's going to destroy the city and you. Now, David could have said to himself, if he was not going to be discerning and not seeking, he's going to be like, wait a minute, I'll just save these people's lives. Surely they're going to help me out. And we'll all fight together. If he would have just assumed that, that would have been a problem, wouldn't it? Because that's the way you would think, wouldn't you? Man, I just risked my life and my men's lives to help these people out. they got to have some gratitude. Uh-uh. But you know what he did? He inquired of the Lord. Abiathar, the high priest, get him down here. He's got that ephod. He's got that urim and thummim. And he asked the Lord, will these people deliver me up? Oh, yeah, they will. They will was his answer. He could have gotten in trouble if he hadn't sought the Lord. Because he's saying, yeah, the people of Kaliah, what you need to remember is they like their own skin more than yours. And they'll deliver you up to Saul. And so David got out of Dodge. But the mistake Joshua made here is he wasn't willing to do what? He wasn't willing to wait on the Lord and he wasn't willing to wait for the Lord. So waiting on the Lord means to use the means he's given us for directions. So we've got to avoid on major decisions or really a lot of decisions that are going to affect us spiritually in other ways, relying on ourselves that we know the right thing to do. Now, we don't have to pray and seek and study the word on whether we should put our pants on before we go to the store. You can do that without you know, getting before the Lord. But when we need direction that are going to have consequences in our lives, we need to do what? 
James 1, we've talked about that a lot of time. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask and God will give and he won't get on your case, abrade you for asking and also seeking the word. That's waiting on the Lord. But waiting for the Lord means you got to wait for his answer. It might not come as quickly as you want. But here's the thing you see in this. What did it say? It took how long for Israel to discover who these people were? Three days. That's all they had to do. They could have waited three days and they would have known exactly what to do. If they said, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure who you are. And until the Lord shows me, I'm going to sit here and do nothing. That would have been the best route to take, right? In that case. And they didn't do that. You know, Bevington... You know, he wasn't sure if he should preach in this one city or not. He got before the Lord for days waiting on the Lord until God answered him. And he would answer Bevington and be nice if I got these a lot in a vision. He sees that church door opening and him able to go in there and preach. But the interesting thing is, Bevington says when he would get before the Lord, he said nine out of ten things that come to him. The first nine out of ten are impressions from the devil. You get in a hurry, and you go by that first impression, second impression. Might not be the Lord. You've got to wait until you know. But two things we need to see that when we're finding God's will for decisions in our lives, that we need to see that many times they have potentially eternal and permanent consequences. And so what should that do to us? That should make us sober and alert, not gullible. Not in a hurry. Because sowing and reaping is still a law. Don't want to be in a hurry. Where are we going to find his will first and foremost? In his word. Because any impression, people like, oh, the Lord led me. And what they're saying, the Lord led them to do. They don't bother getting in the word. The Lord led them to do contradicts what the Bible said. I'm like, how is that the Lord when it contradicts the Bible? You live your whole life on impressions. And you're opening yourself up to trouble. And like George Mueller said, look, when he's seeking God's will, get his will out of the way, make sure he's got sin out of his life. He's guided by the word and the spirit. You got to have both. And so you really need to know the word. And what does that mean? And how many of us really do get ourselves saturated with the word or are we instead saturated with the Internet? And then we become gullible and really don't know what to do. We think we're doing the right things, but we really don't know what the right thing to do is. And when you get saturated with the word, you need to be saturated to the point it becomes part of you, part of your inner core. And then a lot of things, you don't have to go frantically trying to find your Bible, frantically calling up a brother for what was this verse and can you tell me what I need to do? Because it says this in Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright, it will guide them. Knowing that word will give you integrity and uprightness. And then the word is just part of you. He's in you. That law is written on your heart. So the last thing I want to look at here, we look at their lack of wisdom. And the, the second thing I want to look at is they may have had a lack of wisdom. But what the last thing I want to see here in this chapter is, but we see no lack of grace with God, do we? <laughs> Because Joshua, he clearly made a mistake because he didn't consult the Lord and was deceived. And he could have brought trouble into Israel by allowing a people that God said their ways will corrupt you and destroy you. Strictly forbidden to make a treaty with anybody that lived in that land, any of the inhabitants of Canaan. But how many people in here believe that God can take a mistake and work all things together for our good? 
even our mistakes. Man, he does that all the time. And here we see, when you read this, go back and reread it, he clearly had his hand on this whole situation. Took their failure and made it a success. He's so gracious. So gracious. And Joshua and the elders, they'd made a covenant with the Gibeonites in the name of Yahweh. Covenanted, they promised, they gave their word in the name of the Lord not to destroy them and come to their aid if necessary. And what we don't understand here, I've seen this so much in our circles, is we don't understand over there when they made a promise and an oath, they took it seriously. They took it seriously. And how many times do people promise you they'll do something and it is like nothing for them. They give you your word just to not show up and not even call. Don't worry about they don't keep their word. Psalm 15 says this, verse 1, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle and who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He goes on to say, he that swears to his own hurt and changes not. So do we want to abide in the hill of the Lord? When we give our word to do something, we need to do it, the Bible says, even if it's going to cost us. So you're a contractor. We have a lot of contractors in here. And you sign a contract or give somebody your word that you'll do a job for X number of dollars and you underestimated your labor. You're bidding against other people. They gave you that job. Now, I'm not saying maybe you couldn't talk to them. I made a mistake. But if they say, no, this is what we need you to do it for. Hey, that's what you need to do it for. You don't need to start trying to figure out how you're not going to make this hurt you. I promise top grade material, I can get it a lot cheaper and make up for that there, right? Cut corners this way and that. Is that Christian? Is that biblical? You can't do that. You got to keep your word and trust the Lord. And if you do, he'll bless you for being a person of integrity. Someone that'll keep their word at any cost. Or you get an invitation to go over to somebody's house to eat and you just really don't like them. But you said, yeah, well, I guess I don't have anything going on. Don't have a good reason not to go. And you go over, in the meantime, you get a call from people you like. Hey, we're having a big time. And you can hear they're having a big time over there. And so you just call the other person up. Do you call them up? So I'm just sorry. I'd really like to come, but I can't because I got this over here. Is that what you do? Is that right? Mm -mm. Don't cut out on your commitment. You swear it says to your own hurt, you suffer loss for the joy of doing. We like to talk about what would Jesus do. Jesus would go to the first one. He would keep his word, I'll tell you that. That's what your bracelet's telling you. But back to the grace of God. The grace of God. I want to get back. That was a little silo on there about swearing to your own hurt. But the Gibeonites did what? They made up this lie to save their skin. Look in verse 24. And they answered Joshua and said, It was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. And look what it says there at the end. Therefore, because of all that, we were sore afraid, and they should have been, of our lives because of you. And that's it says at the end, verse 24. That's why we did this thing. And Joshua and the people, they say, all right, fine, but we made an oath. We can't kill you. But you're going to be under a curse for the rest of your lives. You're going to be hewers of wood, and you're going to be carriers of water, is what he told them. They'd have to endure hard manual labor for the rest of their existence, this people and their grandchildren and all that other. It's kind of like scraping paint for the rest of your life. It's like, ugh. John Steele, Joel's dad, said painting's under the curse. And I'm like... I'm not going to contradict that. I agree with you. <laughs> we laugh about that. Here's the grace of God. 
The grace of God is seen in this in where was this hard labor going to take place? Look in verse 23. Joshua says, now therefore you're cursed, okay, there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water, but where are they going to do this at? The house of God. And that's significant. Where are they going to be, these people? They're going to be where the word of God is preached. They would know the priest. They would have access like no one else did. Even Jews wouldn't have had the same access they would have had to the truth and the true knowledge of God. That is really a blessing. On a continual basis, it would be that way. David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Just let me have my foot there. And these people were there constantly. Constantly. And the Bible indicates that the Gibeonites... Oh, they might have been under hard labor, but they became spiritual people dedicated to serving the Lord. And these people were Hivites. Look at verse 7. Look back at verse 7. It says, the men of Israel said, they're talking to the Gibeonites, but it says here in verse 7, it gives us a little hint of what nation they're from. The men of Israel said unto the Hivites. So the Gibeonites were Hivites. The Hivites were enemies of Israel continually through the book of Judges fighting with them continually through the book of Judges. Yet, you will never hear of the Gibeonites. They never defected back to their people. They never war against Israel. They're faithful. They stay faithful all the rest of their days to Israel. Gibeon, listen to this, is where David put the tabernacle and sacrificed to the Lord. Their city, this city in Gibeon. One of the cities that was given to the sons of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, at least one, maybe more, of David's mighty men of valor was a Gibeonite. The men of Gibeon are listed, if you read Nehemiah, they're listed amongst the exiles. They went with Israel. They're one with this, exiled out to Babylon. They're listed in the names of the people that came back. And they are listed, I believe it's Nehemiah 3.7. They are named, they had their section of the wall they were responsible to rebuild. They helped rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And that is God's grace. Those people, like us, were destined for destruction. But were what? God in His grace took this mistake that was made. They gained access by deceit, but He turned it into grafting them into the vine because God is good and gracious. And they're like Rahab. All of them should have been destroyed with the people of Canaan. But God took the failure of Joshua and turned it around. And we've been talking about these monuments Here's a monument to Gibeonites, a monument of God's grace, isn't it? My friend Ferguson said this, God doesn't excuse our sin. He doesn't justify our sin. He never will. But he's never paralyzed by it. And he said, God is more full of grace than we are of sin. He will forgive and restore if only we will humbly come to him and say, what the Gibeonites say. Behold, we are in thine hand, as it seems good and right unto thee to do unto us that do. So you miss it, that's the way to come back before the Lord. He doesn't owe us anything. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And whatever you do, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. But I'm back to you. And 
That's the grace that God gives. So all of us have made mistakes, haven't we? Who in here hasn't been spiritually gullible? I have at times. And yet God in His grace has brought us back to truth, hasn't He? Does that a lot. Who hasn't been deceitful? Anybody want to raise their hand and say they've never been deceitful? But God has forgiven us, brought us back into His courts, blessed us with His presence. Doesn't He still do that too? He does that. That's His grace. That's how it works. And who hasn't made a hasty decision without seeking the Lord? We've all done that, haven't we? Sometimes we have to live with those decisions, don't we? But God in His sovereign and gracious hand is still with us, isn't He? Doesn't cast us off even in those situations. Because this is true. I'm going to close with this verse. This is true if you are someone that is His child and you love the Lord because He's put that love in there. This is true. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Amen? Amen. So there is a mistake that was made there, but God's grace abounded, didn't it? Amen. Amen. That's what we see. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. And Heavenly Father, we once again, Lord, we thank you for your word. It always reveals more about us and more about you, Lord. And I ask that you will impress upon all of our hearts this morning, Lord, the danger of being gullible, being naive, accepting things at face value and that we should know your word, Lord. I ask that you put it in these people's hearts, all of our hearts to seek your word, to know your word, to be saturated with your word and to live your word, Lord, to be doers of the word, not just hearers and readers only. And that's the way you'll keep us from deception. And we learn to inquire of you and not to neglect the fact that you say, If we pray for wisdom, you'll give it to us. And we also, Lord, we magnify the grace that we continually see. In Old and New Testament, the grace we see that you pour out on us, your people. And we so thank you for that and help us not to take it for granted or to take advantage of us. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross So we share in this bread of life, and we drink of His sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of body of our Savior Jesus Christ torn for you eat and remember the wounds that heal
death that brings us life paid the price to make us one so we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of around the table of the King. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of as his body here on earth. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bond table of the king around the table of the king